You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Stephen Kistler, a research fellow in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases. This call was recorded at 12.15 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, March 26th. Dr. Kistler, do you have any uh, opening remarks you'd like to say? Um, no, nothing Nothing to start off with. Um, I think I'd just be happy to hear some questions and I'll, uh, yeah, I'll let you know <laughs> to what extent I'm able to answer. All right, um, first question. Hi, Dr. Kistler. Thank you so much for making yourself available today. I really appreciate it. Um, there was national coverage of President Biden's presser yesterday, but during it, no one asked him about the pandemic. So why do you think that is? And what would you have wanted to hear from the president? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, so there are, while there were no questions asked, if I, if I recall correctly, did start off the press conference with, with some remarks about the, the state of vaccination and um, announcing that, uh, that we'd in fact be ahead of, ahead of his original goals to, uh, to vaccinate now 200 million people in the first 100 days. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I certainly would have loved to hear uh, more about um, the state of COVID, the state of uh, some of the response that's, um, that's, uh, that's being done right now. I do think that, that, that vaccination is, is the main thing. So, so the thing that I would be most interested in hearing about um, that I know that uh, both, uh, both the administration and scientists all around the country are working on um, is the spread of the novel variants. You know, we, we've started to see upticks in cases in a number of different places, um, maybe most alarmingly, probably Michigan at the moment, but I think we're seeing them in many places. And, and I think it would be worth, um, you know, just, just ad addressing that, noting that there are rises in cases happening now. Um, and uh, one of the things that we really need to figure out is to, is to what extent those are driven by novel variants of concern um, and to what extent they just reflect uh, the natural epidemiology of the disease um, over the top of different policies and reopening and, uh, and just the way that the disease itself spreads. So I would have loved to hear a little bit more about um, what's being done to get a better handle on the variants, how they're spreading. Um, I know that much of that work is being done, um, but I think that definitely hearing it from uh, from the president would 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 give it uh, sort of wider uh, wider knowledge, which I think would be which would be very helpful. Um, but again, I think that even with the spread of the variants, with the increase in cases, the, the most important thing is that we're continuing to vaccinate um, and that we're we're increasing our vaccination rates. And so that's the thing that I'm most encouraged by. And if there was one message that could get across, I think that it's uh, it's that that we really just need to put most of our focus there. Thank you. And this is something I've been kind of thinking about is if we're kind of falling into this complacency that we have the vaccine. So now we're like in a place where we don't want to ask as many questions or they're not occurring to us. Do you think that's part of what's happening? It could be. I mean, I, I imagine that I, 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 as much as anyone else would love to put this pandemic behind us. Um, and I think that there's, there's, there's some temptation to, you know, there, there are many other issues that are facing our country and our world right now. And, and the pandemic is, uh, high amongst them, and of course not the only one. Um, there, there might be some amount of, of pandemic fatigue here as well. Um, I think there's some some danger in that. You know, that in uh, we do have to recognize that we still have um, many cases and, and many deaths still every day from from the pandemic, and um, and there's there's a danger in getting complacent and in just sort of implicitly accepting that by by not continuing to talk about it. So so I do I do fear um, entering into that and sort of thinking that now that we have the vaccine that everything is over that everything is fine. Um, I think I think maintaining attention on it will be really important, um, as as difficult as it is, and as much as I and everyone else want to put it behind us. Thank you very much. 
Next question. Hey, Stephen. How are you? Um, uh, so, uh, just a couple of quick questions. Well, questions. Um, how alarming are the variants? Um, how much of the decline in case rates and hospitalizations is due to seasonality versus the vaccines? And how effective do you think the vaccines are really? And just, this is all kind of the same question. I'm sorry, it sounds like a lot of different things. But and Gates is saying we're back to normal end of 2022. What's your guess on that? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll try to take them in order, and I'll, I'll let you know if I need to be reminded on any of those uh, particulars. Yeah, sorry but, about that. Um, I, no, no, that's that's fine. Okay. Uh, so the with respect to the variants, they are um, trying to think exactly how I want to express it. So they're 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 things that we want to pay close attention to for sure, and, and they're alarming in a way, um, in the in the sense that uh, we have multiple variants circulating now. Um, and the uh, different variants have different attributes. Um, some of them, like the B117 variant that was first detected in the UK, um, is very clearly uh, more infectious, more transmissible, um, and seems to uh, potentially cause more severe illness as well. Um, other variants are able to get around immunity to some extent. Um, and so each of them, um, undermines our ability to control the pandemic in uh, in some way and, and many times in different ways. And so the part of what is concerning about the variants is, is just that they exist. And part of it is that there are, there are different variants that are each sort of um, making our job more difficult in a different way. Uh, that said, the things that we've been doing so far um, are effective against the variants. And, and while it makes our job more difficult, um, really none of the fundamental messaging has changed. Um, physical distancing, masking are all still important, are all still crucial as our contact tracing, testing, um, and vaccination as well. Um, it seems to be the case, you know, and we're still gathering a lot of data on this. Um, I will also say that I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a vaccine expert in terms of how the vaccines themselves work. Um, but so far, most of the evidence that we've seen is that the vaccines do provide uh, decent protection against severe disease and illness, um, even against the variants that we've detected. So that's very good news. It's it's the severe disease, and uh, and death that we're that is most important to avoid. Um, and it seems like both the current vaccines are holding up against that, and the vaccine uh, companies are are hard at work at uh, developing uh, variations on their vaccines that are more effective against these specific variants. So I think there's a lot of hope. Um, you asked about the the sort of the different forces driving the, the the epidemic as well. To what extent the declines that we've seen are related to seasonality versus vaccination um, versus any number of other things. So I do. Um, it's really hard to disentangle these things um, for for so many different reasons um, because we. It, it, even when comparing two different geographic locations or one period of time against another. There's just so much changing at once um, that I think the the unsatisfying but truest answer is that we don't fully know. Um, I do anticipate that that seasonality is is playing has played an important role in bringing cases down nationally um, up until this point, um, and and part of that is because we saw that decline um, in such a uniform way um, that it was that, that the decline was really shared across many uh, across many places across the United States um, and indeed many other parts at similar latitudes across the world so uh, and some of that decline 
related to seasonality may well be due to the um, the climate, the weather, but but it may also be due to changes in behavior, things like that. Um, Vaccination has absolutely played a role, though. Um, and, you know, we've we've at this point vaccinated in the United States um, you know, many many people. I, I I haven't updated myself on on the most recent numbers, but um, on the order of thirty percent of people, I think, uh, as of last week, um, had at least gotten their first dose, and and that's very good. You know, that that provides a quite a bit of underlying immunity, um, and uh, and even though it doesn't get us. Uh, probably doesn't get us to the herd immunity threshold. I mean, clearly we're seeing upticks in cases in various places. Uh, it does go a long way towards slowing down infection. And again, we've we've done a pretty good job at vaccinating those who are most at risk of severe disease and illness um, by uh, uh, by vaccinating people in long-term care homes, uh, by vaccinating the elderly. And that's going a long way towards making a dent in uh, downstream hospitalizations and deaths too. So I think that there's uh, there's a lot of success here to be celebrated. Um, we're just not out of the woods yet. Um, and so it's it's a complex story for sure. Um, if there's anything else that I haven't addressed. Uh, yeah, just, just a quick, just so Gates end of 2022, what's your guess for when this is kind of all over? Uh, it, it depends on it depends on what it means. Um, so I think that well, he's, say, he's saying back to normal, but uh, I, yeah, we could we could discuss that. But I, I think you get the gist of what I mean, right? And uh, yeah, so part of uh, part of the the uh, maybe I can uh, maybe I can address it this way is that um, we know from our experience with influenza pandemics that very frequently uh, flu causes a major pandemic, spreads in multiple waves, but then that same strain enters into seasonal circulation thereafter for years, potentially. Um, I, I anticipate that something similar could happen with COVID-19. Um, now, that said, I think that we will likely return to something that resembles um, the life that we had prior to the pandemic, even if SARS-CoV-2 does enter into seasonal circulation. I think that through vaccination, through natural um, exposure to the illness, we will hopefully build up some level of immunity to it that will prevent the most severe outcomes. So I think SARS-CoV-2 will likely to continue to circulate. Um, but I think that uh, I think that that's, that's a reasonable projection. Um, I, it, making these sorts of time frame projections is just incredibly difficult. Um, again, because we don't know what the variants will do. We don't know what new variants will emerge. Um, and, and I think that that at the moment is, is probably the, the gravest threat towards uh, making that projection, uh, extending that projection. Um, but I think that, uh, that it's, it's a reasonable one based on the information that we know. Meaning you agree with 2022, end of next year. That, that's what you mean when you say reasonable. Yeah, yeah, I think okay. so. You know, and it, it, yeah, okay. it'll, right. I think that that's. Yeah, let me get out of the way because there's a long queue. Thank you so much. Sure, sure. Next question. Hey, Dr. Kissler, thanks for taking questions. Uh, th this is a question relating to vaccines and testing. So I, I, I don't know if, uh, if you'll be able to answer it, but, but I'll take a shot. Um, sure. This is sort of a, uh, a situation that came up locally. Um, you know, if you were vaccinated, you're now protected against the worst outcomes. But as I understand it, you know, if you're exposed to the virus, you could still uh, you know, pick up low levels of the virus, you could still be shedding the virus. Now, you know, if we're doing screening, frequent screening testing at workplaces, schools, for instance, could that person uh, still test positive? You know, someone who's been vaccinated and, you know, doesn't have a real case of COVID, but could they still test positive 
uh, on one of these tests and have to kind of needlessly quarantine. Uh, is that something that you've heard about that that people are um, considering, or or is this kind of a um, a rare or, or or implausible situation? Yeah. So if 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 a person is vaccinated. Um, you're right, they, they can still become infected and they if they do become infected, they could test positive on either a PCR or a rapid antigen test. Um, if a school or workplace is doing screening that could cause that person to be quarantined. Um, but I would say that that's, that's actually a very necessary quarantine. That's, that's a good thing uh, because you can still be infectious um, even if you've gotten vaccinated. And so if, especially if a rapid antigen test, which seems to be very good, especially at picking up people who are currently infectious, if that turns positive, then then I think that it, it makes sense for a person, even if they've been vaccinated, uh, to isolate um, so that they don't go on to spread disease to others. Um, certainly getting vaccinated reduces the probability both that you'll become infected and spread the disease. Um, it, it seems pretty clear that, that the vaccines do reduce the amount of virus that your body produces if you do become infected. So that all reduces the probability of transmission. But but. Um, there's going to be a whole lot of variation between people, um, and uh, and there will be some people who do get infected and who are able to infect others even after vaccination. So, I think that actually what this points out is that that these kinds of testing strategies, especially you know in workplaces and schools, um, can be absolutely crucial in tandem with the vaccines to help keep control of the spread of SARS-CoV-2. Great, thank that. That's super helpful. So, and I must confess I haven't looked at sort of like the latest. CDC guidance on screening testing, but it sounds like you're saying that even if you're vaccinated, uh, if, if you're going into an environment where there's a screening program, you still need to get tested. Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially while cases remain uh, relatively high. Great, thank you. Thanks. Uh, next question. Hi, Dr. Kistler, thanks for um, making yourself available today. Um, just kind of wanted to go off of, uh, I guess, what Matthew was um, asking about. We haven't heard a lot about a national testing strategy lately, and I just wanted to know your thoughts on whether we still need one, um, and if so, you know, what sorts of components should be included in that, what sorts of situations it needs to address, because certainly the, um, the pandemic looks very different now um, than what it did at the beginning, um, like, like the situation you raised with being vaccinated and still needing to get tested and that sort of thing. Right. So yes, I, I, I do still believe strongly that, um, that testing remains key to our ability to control this pandemic. Um, again, the vaccines will help hugely. Um, the important thing is to help the vaccines as much as we can too. Uh, so yeah, so I think that uh, what I would like to see in a national testing strategy is, you know, first, uh, just volume of testing, making testing as available as possible so that um, people who want a test are able to get a test and are able to do so, um, you know, not, not only are they are they available, but they're available so that they're affordable and quick. Um, I think all of that is really important um, so that individuals can make decisions about uh, how to go about their own lives. Um, I do think that there's a lot of room to expand rapid antigen testing. Um, I think I'm uh, pretty aligned here with Dr. Minna about the, the potential value of those in um, really uh, giving us a much better sense of how much infection is circulating and empowering individuals to, uh, to help keep themselves and their communities safe. Um, 
and, and part of the reason why I think some of this is so important is, is again, because vaccines go a long way towards reducing the spread of disease, but, um, but the more disease we have, the more likely it is for variants to spread and just the more people will get infected and end up in the hospital um, while we're still getting our vaccination ramped up. So I think both of these things, testing and vaccination together remain key. Um, a couple other reasons why uh, high volumes of testing are really important. You know, part of it has to do with the variants as well. Um, if we start seeing uh, clusters of cases emerging in places where we wouldn't expect them to, uh, that gives us a lot of information that tells us that we might want to look there for a variant of concern. Um, and the more testing we're doing, the more quickly we'll be able to pick those sorts of things up and to keep control of it before those variants spread elsewhere. On top of that, um, as we're doing testing, so we have PCR testing, we have uh, the rapid antigen testing, but meanwhile, I do think that there's a lot of room to continue building up our uh, genomic surveillance uh, to make sure that we are sequencing enough of the samples that we're taking um, of the virus uh, so that we can stay on top of the emergence and spread of variants that way too. So I think that most importantly, um, well, I guess all three of these things are pretty important, making tests available, rapid turnaround, um, increasing the volume of rapid antigen tests that are available, um, and also increasing genetic uh, surveillance. Um, I don't know if I could prioritize any one of those over the other. I think they're all pretty important as we move forward. Thank you. And just a quick, quick follow-up. Um, a lot of the antigen tests are not being reported. Um, do you have any recommendations on how to improve that system or you know, what, what federal officials need to do to be able to track those results? As they come in, um, I, I, I don't actually. I don't. I don't think I'm equipped to answer sort of what logistically would need to be done to make that happen. I'm sorry. It's okay. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, next question. Hi. Thanks for uh, taking my question. Um, okay. I, I had a question. I guess building on um, some of the. Uh, testing that you were discussing, um, uh, specifically regarding positivity rates. Um, and, and I'm wondering if you could maybe just talk a little bit about the reliability um, of this metric and if we should still be using it uh, at this stage uh, in the pandemic. Yeah, so we, uh, right, so we've, we've sort of used multiple different metrics over the course of the pandemic to try to understand how much circulation is happening. Um, I think that, that positivity rates uh, remain valuable, um, but it's it's important to be careful about how we're interpreting them. Um, I think the most uh, the biggest difficulty about interpreting positivity rates, and actually other metrics as well, but just that uh, they're they're not especially consistent over time uh, because they depend so much on how much testing is being done and and who's being tested and why they're being tested. Um, so if, if you know, for example, we begin to implement testing strategies that are uh, is doing a lot of surveillance testing of um, people who we don't expect to necessarily be exposed to the virus in the workplace or even in the general community, uh, that, that'll naturally reduce our positivity rate um, just because we're, we've got essentially a bigger denominator. We're dividing by more people who are getting tests who aren't expected to be positive. Um, and since, uh, since that hasn't been the case over the entire pandemic, um, you know, generally, we've, we've seen an overall trend of positivity rates falling, um, you know, both, both when cases fall, but also just because uh, more people who are unlikely to be infected are getting tested as well. So that makes it really difficult to compare positivity over time. But I think over short periods of time, when you can be pretty uh, confident that your testing strategy in a given community is, is fairly consistent, then positivity is still immensely valuable. Um, 
because it, it does give us, I think, maybe one of the, the clearest insights into um, whether we are starting to see rises in infection. Uh, when I'm looking at the surveillance data, I always try to triangulate between various um, inputs, um, including positivity and raw case counts, um, the amount of testing that's being done, um, and then also with an eye to hospitalizations as well, um, even though those are a little bit further downstream and somewhat delayed. Uh, by combining all of those things, we can get a decent sense. And if, if all of them are trending upward, then we can be very confident that, that there's a rise in cases. So I think that positivity still has an important role to play. Um, as testing is, is becoming more and more widespread, I think that we can rely more on just the raw case counts than we were able to earlier in the pandemic. So maybe its importance is declining somewhat, but I think that it's still really valuable for it to be reported. Follow up on that, um, as more and more vaccines roll out, I mean, do you anticipate uh, that having a, an impact on the, on the ratios you're describing? Because, you know, I'm thinking possibly fewer tests would be being conducted um, and maybe the pool of people getting tested would be um, you know likely unvaccinated people who, who might be more likely to to have COVID or test positive. Right. Yeah, I, I can anticipate that, that vaccination could change this in, in a number of different ways. Um, it's a little bit hard to anticipate. Um, you know, ideally by by vaccinating uh, those who are at most risk of severe disease and illness, um, what we may be doing is uh, sort of skewing the overall, you know, we're, we're protecting the people who are most likely to, to, to feel symptoms basically. Um, and so that could just reduce the number of people who are getting tested. Um, yeah, so, so I think you're exactly right that, uh, that through vaccination we might, uh, we could see, gosh, I could make an argument in both directions that we could see increases in positivity uh, just based off of, um, the the scenario that you just outlined, um, but I could also see potentially decreases in positivity as we're increasing testing capacity in tandem with vaccination. So it's not clear to me which direction that'll head, and it'll probably head different directions in different communities, depending on who's been vaccinated and what their testing strategy is. Um, so the, the incredibly unsatisfying answer is that it, vaccination will affect this, but it's uh, it's not totally clear to me in what way. Okay, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks. Next question. Oh. Yeah, uh, some countries uh, like Denmark and, and Norway have suspended the AstraZeneca vaccine because of, uh, um, of some adverse, very rare side effects, possible side effects uh, with blood clotting. Um, what kind of impact could this have that one, one uh, kind of vaccine is not used could that have on uh, on COVID nineteen mortality? Do you have any comment on that? Yeah. Um, so I think I mean I think the most important thing is that we're in the fortunate situation where we do have um, multiple vaccines that are that are available. Um, I think that uh, the the biggest issue in my mind about um, Pulling authorization in particular for the AstraZeneca vaccine is it just just that it reduces the amount of supply that's available, which in turn could reduce the, the rate at which people could get vaccinated. Um, but it is a really important line to walk to ensure that the public has has trust in the vaccines um, and and trusts that uh, you know the the authorities are doing everything they can to uh, closely review the safety and efficacy of the vaccines as as we move along. So. Um, 
it uh, it can absolutely have an effect to the extent that it changes the overall rate of vaccination that's happening. Um, and so uh, if it does lower the rate at which um, people are getting vaccinated, then I think that we might see uh, less steep declines in mortality and, and hospitalizations. Um, you know, this is a really crucial time to be vaccinating uh, as much as we can, especially as, as many of these variants are, are starting to rise in prevalence and we're seeing surges in many, uh, many countries around the world. Um, so I think it's, it's a very difficult dance um, and uh, sort of this, uh, this race between getting people vaccinated to try to prevent rises in infection. So it, it, it will likely have an effect, um, but I think the, the real thing to underscore is that uh, thankfully we do have multiple vaccine candidates. And so hopefully people will still be able to get vaccinated um, and uh, and to use the other vaccines that we have at our disposal um, to keep vaccine rates high. Yes, thank you very much. I have one uh, follow-up question also. How can different countries, health authorities, have such a different uh, way, way or view view as to uh, as to how cautious cautious you should be in this kind of situations? Yeah, it's. Um, it's it's very complex, and I think that I mean, in a way, I think that rightly, this um, the these decisions factor in so much, including the you know the the actual measured safety and efficacy of the vaccines, but also um, in any given country, society, um, a tolerance for risk and a tolerance for different types of risk. Of you know, there's uh, here people are voluntarily. Uh, taking a vaccine and and we want to make sure that it's as safe as it can be um and i think that that weighing the risks of that versus the risks of covid is is uh we can do that statistically and and numerically but it's also kind of a delicate process that that's embedded in in, in culture and, and politics as well um so i think it's natural that different countries and different administrations will will take different routes um I, um, I mean, I, I, I privately have my own opinions as to what ought to be done and um, and and what is safe and effective. Um, but also, you know, I, I'm not an elected official, and I think that that's part of why we have have these people in the roles that they're in is to hopefully guide these decisions as best as they can. So I think it makes sense that there's going to be variation, um, and I think that uh, that these decisions can be deeply informed by science, but are not. Um, not 100% scientific decisions. They also have to take into account risk tolerance and um, all sorts of different uh, cultural and political things as well. Um, I'm not sure if there's any more I can say to it than that. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Uh, next question. Um, thank you so much for being here. I just got a couple of questions on the uh, rapid test. Um, do you know why we don't have cheap, you know, the cheap rapid one to two dollar antigen tests available? And then do you think Biden's team will be laying out a, a national strategy to use these? And then lastly, just I've never seen the specificity of these tests. Great. Um, yeah, so I think that uh, as, from everything that I have um, from everything that I, I can tell, the uh, the barrier with uh, having the cheap rapid tests available in the United States um, is essentially regulatory. Um, so far, the the rapid antigen tests that have been approved um, are almost entirely only available um, with a physician's prescription. 
Um, and uh, just various regulatory barriers have have uh, have made it really difficult to bring um, these cheap rapid tests to market in the United States. Um, the technology exists; we're we're producing them already, um, and it's uh, much many of the barriers are regulatory at this point. Um, just ensuring essentially that the tests are uh, are effective at doing what they're meant to do, um, which is in this case to detect people who are likely to be infectious. Um, so the I'm hopeful that um, that the current administration will put quite a bit of effort into making these sorts of tests more available. Um, they have uh, mentioned them by name in, in a number of documents and addresses um, to the American public. And so I think that it's it's clearly uh, it's clearly something that they're focusing on and thinking about, um, and so I'm hopeful there. Um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that that these particular types of tests, the rapid antigen tests, have uh, have been highlighted at, at various points. Um, so I think that there's uh, there's reason to think that there will be emphasis placed on this, but of course it requires um, you know, not only the effort of of the administration, but also um, of the FDA um, and uh, Part of that includes increasing, uh, gathering more and more evidence amongst uh, scientists and public health officials uh, to demonstrate their their efficacy um, to the extent that it exists, which I'm I, I'm pretty well convinced of. But I know that there are many others who are not. Um, and I believe you asked about the specificity. Is that right? Uh, yes. Just uh, you know, Dr. Mina is always talking about what great sensitivity they have. Uh, how is the specificity? Yeah, so the, the specificity uh, similarly is um, actually even more so than the sensitivity is, is extremely high. Um, as with any test, there's, there are risks of, uh, of false positives. Um, but uh, from, from all of the evidence that I've seen, and, and this comes from um, some, some preliminary studies that I've seen both out of the UK and the US, um, the, the specificity is, uh, is very good, um, upwards of 99% in, in most cases. And that of course, um, you know, takes into account different uh, you know, use cases. We, we have to be very clear about what exactly it is we're measuring and that we're trying to detect. Um, and, uh, and here the rapid antigen tests are trying to detect people who are Producing antigens in their blood, which means that they're they're likely to be infectious. But when when we're using that as the metric, uh, both sensitivity and specificity are are quite high. Okay, thank you very much. And I mean, it just seems like the FDA has approved expensive antigen tests. <laughs> Why won't they approve? I mean, it's just the I don't understand. <laughs> I, I I wish I did. Um, I and and part of this, you know, is 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 that I, um, I mean, I'm not on any of the boards in the FDA, so I, I I don't I don't know what those conversations are looking like right now or what evidence they're looking at. But but I agree with you. I think that um, the the evidence in my mind of of their uh, efficacy and and of the potential value of having these tests cheaply available is absolutely huge. Um, and so uh, I think that's that's just the message I would most like to get across is that I'm I'm, I'm deeply yeah. convinced that they would be. Uh, a valuable tool in our fight against this pandemic. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, and I will say too, if you would like uh, Dr. Mina's comment on why he thinks the FDA is not pushing these forward, we have um, previous calls with him that are recorded. So I can send you one of those if you would like. Just shoot Thank me an email. So so I, yeah, shoot me an email so I don't forget. <laughs> Thank you.
Uh, next question. Hi, um, thanks for this conversation. Um, I do have a follow-up question to your comments on the FDA, on, you know, its regulatory barriers. Um, the FDA did issue a new template, did issue a template and some additional guidances last week on rapid tests, you know, on, on, um, on requirements for these rapid at-home tests. And I wanted to know if you think that helps alleviate the bottle, those help alleviate the bottleneck. And they would say they didn't get, uh, they haven't been getting many, they didn't get submissions for months on the rapid test. So um, it took over, over the summer and the fall, they were waiting for more submissions and didn't get them. Um, anyway, I wanted to know if, um, if the, the new, new um, recommendations, guidances, whatever from the FDA last week will help to alleviate the barrier, the barrier of fit and see on the regulatory side. Yeah, so um, I, I have to admit that I, I am not up to date on what exactly those new recommendations are. Um, so I don't know if I can speak to them directly. Um, I, uh, yeah, I think, I think without reading them, I, I don't know if I can give an informed answer to that, unfortunately. If you would like to send me your email, um, send me your questions by email. I'll see if Dr. Minna could comment on I would that. appreciate that, thank you. Yes. Yeah, thank just you go ahead and send them to me. Um, it looks like that may be the last call, uh, question from folks on the call, um, but I still have a question that came in. You may have answered this already, um, but I'm just going to ask in case there's anything else I'd like to fill in. He's trying to understand some of the recent surges we are witnessing, even as weather warms and vaccines become more ubiquitous. One ex explanation is the UK variant, which seems more prolific in Michigan and Florida. But I'm kind of wondering why we are seeing such a steady increase in the Northeast, including Massachusetts. I have thought that between vaccines and the number of infected people from last spring, the new cases would at least plateau, if not steadily decline. So what do you think is going on here? Yeah, so I think that um, you know, we, we do have um, relatively high rates of, of variants, of, of different variants of concern, um, including the UK B117 variant um, here in the Northeast too. So, so I'm, I'm certain that that's, uh, that's part of the story. Um, part two, and uh, I think that we need to do some more surveillance and I actually need to get more up to date on the surveillance too, to know this for sure. But um, and again, the, the other concern about, uh, as I mentioned before, some of the other variants, uh, not only are more infectious, but are able to escape some amount of the, our immune response. Um, and so some of that may be partly why we are seeing increases in cases in places that have, uh, both have high vaccination rates and have had uh, severe surges of infection before, um, similar to the way that we saw rises of infections in, um, some of them were first detected in parts of Brazil that had had very uh, severe first waves of the, of the pandemic. Um, and I think the last thing too is that even um, you know, even in many of the hardest hit areas in the United States, um, there are still plenty of uh, susceptible people remaining to be infected. Um, one one clear example of that, for example, is is we know that in uh, in New York City, um, certainly in in parts of the city, uh, many people left early in the pandemic, um, and so a lot of the transmission that we saw in New York City was was amongst those who remained behind. And in, in, in meanwhile. Um, 
there've been large shifts, you know, many, many people are moving back to these parts of the country. Um, and if they hadn't been previously infected, then that, that sort of increases the pool of susceptible people who are available to be infected from the disease as well. So I think that there's a lot of complex things going on that, um, you know, include the variants, but also include sort of shifts in the population structure who's, who's around to be infected. Um, and all of that is likely playing into uh, what we're seeing now. Uh, great, thank you. Um, and, and then I was also going to throw my own two cents in there. Um, do you think it's going to be a big uh, change when people start going back to the office as well? Um, right now, you and I are both working remotely. A lot of companies are still working remotely. And as people start heading back to the office, is that going to be incre increase that pool of people who are susceptible and also? Um, yeah, so it... It, it it may well um, do that. Uh, the the thing though that I'm um, that I'm optimistic about is that uh, we we've learned an awful lot about how to keep uh, indoor environments relatively safe, um, and that includes uh, really especially ventilation as well as masking. Um, having air filtration, um, all of these things go a long way towards keeping places uh, like offices um, relatively low risk for the spread of COVID. So I think that if we were to go back to offices um, just as if we it were the pre-pandemic era, they would absolutely contribute to spread because we would be causing people to interact who haven't been interacting with each other or potentially even with the, their broader communities um, up until now. Um, but we've learned an awful lot. And I think that we know pretty clearly what it takes to keep indoor environments relatively safe. Um, and as long as we're prioritizing those things and making sure that we're, we're staying on top of them, um, I'm, I'm optimistic that people returning to work um, won't, especially office type work, um, won't contribute hugely to new surges of an infection. Great, thank you. Um, does anybody else have any other questions? If so, you can raise your hand uh, using the blue hand icon or the reactions hand icon. You can get in touch with me by Zoom chat, anything like that. If not, that may be it. Great, Dr. Kessler, do you have any final thoughts for us before we go? I don't believe so. Thanks very much for being here today. This concludes the March 26th press conference.